Hi church, uh, I'm Em, I'm married to Dan and I'm just going to read the passage for us um, this morning and then pray. So we are heading to Philippians chapter 1 starting at verse 1. So if you have a Bible with you, give you a moment to find the passage. The contents page is okay. There's no prizes in heaven for not using a contents page. So uh, New Testament, the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's just pray before Dan comes and unpacks this passage for us. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and vital and it can change us. Thank you that it teaches us who you are and that as we come to understand who you are, we will be changed, that we can grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ so that we can go into all the world confident, of who we are in light of who you are. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, anoint and bless Dan's words as he shares from this passage, that you will build up HHBC into the fullness of all you have for these people, for this church, in this community, at this time. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in your name, Jesus. And we pray that everything that you want for your word this morning would return to you complete. We thank you that you promise that your word does not go out and return void or empty, but that you accomplish everything for which you purpose for it. And so we just pray now that you would give us eyes and ears and minds and hearts that are open and ready to receive all that you have for us. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. It is really good to be with you again. Um, I'm actually recording this on Friday, um, but I'll certainly be on the Zoom link live and very much with you in spirit for the service on Sunday morning. I had the most wonderful welcome while I was with um, you all in January earlier this year. Um, it's not easy to explore working together with someone who's living on the other side of the world. So both your hospitality the other week and your flexibility to, I guess, allow me to deliver this sermon online are greatly appreciated. I feel really blessed to um, have had the opportunity to get to know some of you um, and I'm really looking forward to kind of 
where those relationships might end up going. But when I was asked to preach um, this morning, I was told to pick my own topic, which almost never happens as a pastor. And I simply picked my favourite book of the Bible and then taken the passage from the beginning of that book, which introduces some of the key themes. It's why Emily's just read Philippians chapter one for us. Because, you see, I believe that our worshipping together, our prayer together, and especially our opening of the scriptures together, is more important than any business that may or may not take place afterwards. Why? Because we are pe different people. We are um, different people with different desires and different tastes and different preferences and different backgrounds and, and even the odd different accent. In fact, the only thing that unites us, the only reason we gather this morning, is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have slightly different ideas, for example, about what's important in church, in leadership or in planning our lives. But our unity is found in the gospel. See, if HHBC was to take the focus of what unites, then we will quickly become a divided church, split into cliques or whatever else. But if we're going to be a healthy church, then we're going to need to keep the main thing the main thing. Stephen Covey, um, famous quote, says this, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And actually, that's exactly why Philippians, I believe, is a fantastic book to study. Philippians is an exercise, in some ways, in correcting our priorities. It celebrates the joy there is to be found in getting our priorities right. It promises peace and grace to those who keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is Jesus. In fact, I say... Uh, if you've got your Bible open in front of you and you're looking in the book of Philippians, flick through now. Just have a scan through the, the book as I'm talking. It might be, might, might, might find it more interesting. But you'll, as you look through the book of Philippians, you'll be hard pressed to find a single paragraph that doesn't include either the word Jesus, Christ or Lord. The whole book is unashamedly about him. Because Paul is writing to the, encourage a young church, he's writing his letter to encourage a young church in Philippi, maybe about 40 years old a church, I don't know, maybe a bit younger. A church at a geographical and cultural crossroads. A church in a town with lots of migration, lots of people from different backgrounds, probably lots of different languages being spoken. And he's straight away going to remind people that it's not, that it's all about Jesus and not actually about them at all. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ at Philippi, together with overs and deacons, overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three statements all about Jesus. In fact, what Paul's doing is he pulls, pulls in a well-known Greek greeting, grace to you, and a famous Hebrew greeting, peace to you, and mixes them up right at the start. It's not about where you're from, but actually who you belong to. You might not know much about Philippi as a place. It's a town around 10,000 or so people. So not very large by our standards, because for reference, there may be around 30,000 people in Hayward's Heath. Philippi is about one third the size of Hayward's Heath. And because they didn't have cars, everyone lived very, very close together. It's a small town. And a large proportion of Philippi's population were retired Roman soldiers. 
You see, when a soldier retires from the Roman army, they're given a plot of land, they're given full citizenship of the empire, they didn't have it before. And, and that will enable them to do business, to own property, to choose who they marry, all good stuff, right? An ex-soldier who has become a full Roman citizen um, has a very high standing in the Roman Empire, and probably because not many of them actually made it to retirement. Anyway, around the year 40 BC, Philippi, this is before Jesus, 40 years before Jesus, Philippi was granted the status of being a Roman colony, which meant to be a citizen of Philippi it was the same as to be granted the status of a citizen of Rome. And all of that is to say that the conversation about citizenship would have been everywhere, in the town, in the church, in the marketplace, with everyone's talking about citizenship. Where is your citizenship? And Paul is going to leverage that as we go through Philippians. Maybe, maybe knock the whole idea on the head. Because he's saying that our identity or your identity in Christ comes before a question of identity around citizenship. Who, who you belong to is more important than where you come from. It's more important that you are in Christ than that you are in Philippi. I mean, in chapter 320, we get this phrase explicitly, your citizenship is in heaven. But the idea is right throughout the whole of the letter. Where is your home? Where is my home? Those kinds of questions are complicated and they're complicated in a worldly sense. But if you call yourself a Christian, then your citizenship, your home is in heaven. And this shared citizenship is precisely what Paul is thanking God for when he gets into verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What's another phrase for citizen of heaven? Well, Paul would use the phrase partner in the gospel. If you're a citizen of heaven, you'll be a partner in the gospel. Well, what does that exactly mean? I don't know if any of you have watched any legal dramas recently. I used to really, really enjoy watching Suits. And in every legal drama I've come across, there always seems to be some conversation about people wanting to become partners in a firm. And they have to put up some money to buy in, to, to, to become a partner. And then they profit, don't they, from the firm's success. Partnership has then something to do with becoming invested. But it also has something to do with association. OK, so I follow football um, quite a bit. I'm a qualified referee with New Zealand football. And I, from a reasonably young age, I've um, been involved in football everywhere I turn. And you are get asked to support a team. And, and so I, I picked a team in the early 90s to support, which was Manchester United. Now, when I was growing up in the 90s and when I went to university in about 2002, Manchester United were winning everything. So I would quite often tell people, oh, I support Manchester United. Now, it annoyed people and I quite enjoyed it. It was quite a fun conversation starter. The last 10 years or so, Manchester United has not been very successful. So I've kind of stopped supporting them. I haven't really associate myself with them very much. I, I think I have a replica jersey in my cupboard and I think it fits a much younger and slimmer version of me. But I haven't literally haven't tried it on for years. As a fan, I would be the worst kind of fan. There is no way you could say I'm a partner with Manchester United. If I, if I owned a season ticket, maybe if I bought the new jersey every year, if I got a tattoo of the logo, maybe if I run a supporters club, 
then you could say, oh, maybe I'm on the way to being a partner. And then if I signed with Manchester United to become their analyst or maybe a, a referee in their talent development programme, maybe I could really call myself a partner. Well, partnership has something to do with being invested. It has something to do with being associated and it has something to do with other people. You can't be a partner in the gospel by yourself. It doesn't work. It involves knowing others and being known by the other partners. In fact, there's a, the word translated here as partnership in Philippians is the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated or used, translated as the word fellowship. It literally means a kind of mutual belonging. When we use the word fellowship as Christians, it often sounds quite wet and pathetic. But in fact, is basically the strongest term that you can use for a group of people. People who are invested in, belong to one another. In our society, both in the UK and in New Zealand, we value individualism really highly. But being a Christian, being a citizen of heaven, being a partner in the gospel, means we are to value the community just as highly. See, Paul starts off this letter to the Philippians saying, look, I thank God that you are not just fans of Jesus. I thank God that you're not just employees of the church. I thank God that we are in this together. He thanks God that we are partners in the gospel. So the first question that this letter raises for us is this, it raises for me. Are, are we, am I so wrapped up in my idea of a physical home or an identity that's like nationally identifiable that we haven't, I haven't kind of fully entered into the partnership of the gospel. What is it about your identity, my identity, that is more important to me, to you, than your commitment to Jesus, than your commitment to the gospel? Is it your nationality? Is it your culture? Is it your political affiliation? Is it your career? Is it your family? What is it that is more important to you than your commitment to Jesus? Well, it's interesting um, preaching on this in 2024, um, I can pretty quickly work out what matters most to you. If you connect with me on social media, all I need to do is go online and look you up on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is. And I will be able to tell real quickly that these are the things that you are telling the world, these things matter to you. If I search through your Twitter feed and find a hundred pro-Trump or anti-Trump messages, but I don't find reference to Jesus, that tells me something. If I find dozens of Facebook posts promoting a business or whatever, but no reference to Jesus, that says something. If I go through your bank statements or your diary or your WhatsApp chats, I suspect rather too many of us would fall into the category, at least from time to time, of being fans of Jesus rather than being partners in the gospel. And even in the context of our own conversions, I wonder how prominent Jesus is. Without encouragement, I suspect that most of us will find ourselves talking a lot more about our earthly homes than our heavenly home. But here in Philippians, Paul is super thankful for the church because he remembers and recognises them as partners with him in the gospel. And you'll find that yourself. If you find people that you can share partnership in the gospel with, you'll find like those friendships are so refreshing and they transcend boundaries of cultures and race and all sorts of things. 
I often used to give this advice to Christian students as they arrived in university. Try to mention Jesus by name within the first like 60 seconds of every conversation with every person you meet. I don't know if it's helpful advice in our context, but it might be. Because the best way you can start identifying yourself as a partner in the gospel is asking people to share their testimony with you and sharing your testimony with them. Tell them why you're a Christian. Tell them how you came to believe. This is the first mark of a citizen of heaven, identifying as a partner in the gospel with a story that, that, that tells why. You're a partner in the gospel, not just a fan. Well, the second mark of being a citizen of heaven is that you are defending and confirming the gospel. Listen to how Paul continues um, in verse 7 and 8. I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul is adamant that you will share in God's grace if you are defending and confirming the gospel. Now, you will enjoy God's blessings. You'll see God at work. You'll know, let's say, the hope, the joy, the peace that comes from being convinced that the gospel is true if you are joined in with defending and confirming the gospel. And what does that mean? What a defence and confirmation look like? Well, these are actually two reasonably technical words with specific use in the Greek language. Um, apologia and bebiosis. And they come from court language. Again, we're back in the suits, aren't we? But they come from court language. The apologia is the, uh, the statement issued by the defence to lay out the evidence in question. The, in defence. And the bebiosis is sort of close to saying, not only, I, I, not only do I have the evidence, but I almost am the evidence itself, producing evidence, this idea of bebiosis. If we think about someone that Jesus healed in the Gospels, the blind man in John 9, maybe, he's quizzed over who he thinks Jesus is. And his response is, well, whether this man is a prophet or not, I can't say. But one thing I know, once I was blind and now I can see. The blind man himself is the evidence, is himself evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. You know the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus, when he comes back from the dead, is the evidence that Jesus raises the dead. He's the evidence that Jesus is God with us. What does it take for you to confirm the gospel? Well, to confirm the gospel is to live a life that proves that Jesus has saved you from your sin. Sin is a complex, difficult enemy. We all find that at times we fall short. And, but to confirm the gospel, to say that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to say you've been raised up or saved, the confirmation of that is that you are relentless at fighting sin in your life. Let's think about lust, for example. Maybe you struggle with desires to do something with sex that God doesn't want for you. Confirming the gospel is not giving in to the desires, but to continue to pursue purity, even if and even after you've messed up. There's a famous um, C.S. Lewis quote um, that goes like this. No man knows how bad he is unless he has tried really hard to be good. A silly idea goes around that only good people do not know what temptation means. It's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong temptation is. After all, you find out the strength, says Lewis, of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. 
You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by laying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does, know, does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They live a sheltered life, always giving in. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. It's fascinating. See, to confirm the gospel is to say, look at me. I am the evidence that Jesus saves. Defending the gospel is properly about being able to tell the story of the gospel to someone who doesn't know it. To tell the story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. To be able to tell someone what the implications are. That's defending the gospel. And there'll be questions that will come up if you start to do that. Maybe you'll have your own questions exposed. But my experience backs up Paul's assertion. If you take a risk and speak out. If. If you take a risk and live differently, then you will see the power of God working through you. And that is just the biggest privilege, the most incredible thing. Philemon, verse six, Paul says something like this. It's the sharing of your faith which gives you access to the full blessings of faith itself. So maybe defending and confirming the gospel, maybe that comes down to one idea. Will you agree to pray with me for the opportunity to explain the gospel to someone? Maybe just add a line in your morning prayers and then see who God puts in front of you. You have literally no idea how many people are waiting or praying that God, if he's real, will show themselves to him. Show themselves, show himself to them. And I suspect we are called to be the answer to that prayer more than we realise. So there's two marks of, of heavenly citizenship. Firstly, you're a partner in the gospel. And, and not just a fan of Jesus. And secondly, you are defending and confirming the gospel by word and deed. Lastly, you are producing the fruit of the gospel. And this is the final bit of our passage this morning. Listen to Paul's prayer, Philippians 1 verse 9 through 11. His prayer is that our love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So we'll be able to best discern what is sorry, discern what is best and, 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 and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The fruit of the gospel, filled with the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel or the fruit of righteousness is the final mark of being a citizen of heaven. Living a life of justice, righteousness, having your heart transformed so that you love what God loves, that's a life that is full of the fruit of righteousness. It's kind of the same as saying living a Christ-like life. You see, throughout all this passage, the one thing that God wants from you and from me is that we are increasingly becoming like Jesus. Jesus is the model of how we're called to live. None of us live up to his standard. And that is the standard that God wants for us, to be full of the fruit of the gospel, fruit of righteousness. So how do we get there? How do we produce the fruit of righteousness? It comes, as the, as the verse said, through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, through Jesus. Christians like us have a tendency maybe to believe that Jesus saves us and then expects us to kind of perfect ourselves through hard work and rugged individualism. I think it comes into Western Protestant Christianity, partly through um, some kind of branches of 
of psychology, maybe from Carl Jung and others. But that idea doesn't actually find its root in scriptures at all. We don't perfect ourselves. Paul says the exact opposite at the beginning of Galatians, actually. You've heard this illustration before, I hope. The great exchange. My sin is like my hand here and there's a book on that, that hand and it's separating me from God and Jesus is free from sin on this side and so he, he comes into my life and, and on my, my invitation takes my sin away so now I can relate to God. But it's a fantastic picture of one part of what it has means to have faith, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He took our sins on himself so that we suffered the punishment that was due to us so that we can have relationship with God. And if you've never asked him, he will be thrilled to take your sin away this morning and invite you into relationship with God. But that isn't the end of the story. God's plan for all of us is to become increasingly filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that will only come through Jesus. Every day we need to come to him we need to confess our sin again. We need to ask for his help again. We need to be filled with his spirit again. And we need to learn to see the world through his eyes. It is not enough. It is not enough that you have a passport from heaven. You are called to live a life worthy of that citizenship. Because Jesus does not want fans. He wants partners. Jesus does not need critics. He wants us to be defending and confirming the gospel. Jesus does not save us and then leave us to our own devices. Jesus promises that by filling us with his spirit, he will produce the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And ultimately, that is the evidence that our citizenship is in heaven. So let's pray together before we close. Father, we thank you that our citizenship um, is in Jesus. Our citizenship is found in Jesus and our citizenship is in heaven. We pray, please, would you empower us to live lives that are worthy of that citizenship, full of the fruit of righteousness. Lives which point other people to the hope that you provide. And especially we pray this morning that for those of us who have existed as fans for too long, that you would help us this morning to make the next step towards becoming a partner in the gospel. That you would fill us by the power of your spirit, speak to us and share with us your vision for our lives, for our church, for our world, that we might become partners in the work of the gospel. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.